welcome. I'm Will. And I'm Alicia. This is Enter the Rabbit Hole. Each week we dive into and dissect the weird, the momentous, and the downright interesting. And today we're still covering Operation Midnight Climax. Yes. Parte tres. Is that is that how you say that? Yep. Or are you just are you just making funny making funny noises? No, parte. Part tres. I'm, I'm sorry. So sorry to our Spanish <laughs> listeners. Please don't tell them not to switch off. No. <laughs> tell them. Oh God. Um, quieres ir? Si quieres. <laughs> okay. I'm so sorry. I st- okay. Um, so yes, we are on to part three of Operation Midnight Climax. This is our first three-parter. We are. Ooh. Yeah. Look at us. Look at us go rambling for so long. You love it. That you can't you can't fit it into two parts. But this really this is a sizable story with so many characters, so much stuff going on over so many decades. So that, interesting. I did not just yawn. Uh-huh. <laughs> no yawning on the podcast. It's silent. What it's did we fine. say? So yeah, uh Alicia, how how are you how you doing there? I'm totally fine. Energy levels high. Looking forward to it. Yeah, you sure are. You sure are. And I'm well. I'm well. Thank you for asking. What's, what's really spurring me on uh, is the knowledge that once we finish this, uh, we get to grab lunch and we get to watch Dune on oh, HBO I Max. Oh, I about that. Yeah. Dune's freaking out, baby. It's out. Dune! Yeah. In this... Well, forget about this! <laughs> harsh desert of movies because there's been nothing good out for so out long. Out comes the sandworm of Dune. <laughs> Sci-fi. So I'm uh, extremely extremely up for that. And and just generally up for being done with this story because I really need to free up some mental space. Yeah, that doesn't have to do with the CIA. I can't be thinking about dosing people and sex workers while I'm working yes. with children. I will not allow them to to destroy one more brain that happens to belong to me. Uh, I just won't you let just them do it. You just have so many brains that they've destroyed already. <laughs> For real. Um, so yeah, on if, if you are on that note, if you're listening, go ahead and follow the show and leave us a review. Good, bad, or ugly, we would love to hear from you. Also, if you have any ideas for future episodes, please share them with us. You can find us on etrhthepod at gmail.com or at etrhthepod on social media. And if you, you know, just want to follow us on Instagram, that'd be super cool because I make some curated photos and I would love to have uh, some more people following us. Instagram or Twitter. Not TikTok. We're not... We're, we're, not, no, we're not TikTokers. We're not. We're not that young. <laughs> we're the kind of people who like to have a couple of drinks and be in bed by 11. We're the people who call it Tech Talk. <laughs> you do. Speak for yourself. <laughs> I do. Um, all right. So do we need to give the people out there a recap? Hey, if you jumped in in part three, what the heck are you doing, buddy? It's two parts. Back the hell up. Go on now. Get. Get. This is for your own good. Can't you see we don't want you? <laughs> Uh, but no, last time uh, we introduced George Hunter White, who is just dun 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 the baddie. He 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 is a bad man, and he knows he's a bad man. He is a quintessential dirty cop who loves nothing more than slipping some people uh, some ampoules of acid 
and then watching them get high as fuck, but not knowing why they're getting high as fuck. And he or is. Or that they are getting high as fuck. Absolutely. Uh, he's a consultant for the CIA. He has been working out of New York for about three years at this point. Uh, things have gone south in New York, resulting in the death of a sub-agent, uh, Mr. Frank Olson. Dr. Who was Frank Olson. Dr. Frank Olson, I'm so sorry, uh, who had been working for the CIA on many of their deadliest little tricks and treats. And he had subsequently uh, fallen, <laughs> pushed out of the window. <laughs> Definitely murdered. Yeah, if we're bringing back the 90s cough and then say what you actually think bit. And all of this had resulted in the apartment, the safe house at 81 Bedford Street in Greenwich Village being shut down, the New York operation being shut down. But don't you worry, folks, because we're moving westward. Yeah. Uh, panning for gold and, and panning for sex workers. That's what we're going to do. Uh, and uh, they've got a lot of one in San Francisco. And, and uh, I'll give you a clue. It's not gold. Not anymore. No. All right. So the pad. That's what uh, he calls his uh, safe house. I know it's meant to sound cool, but to me it does just sound like... Uh, like uh, like a 20-year-old boy who just got his first apartment. Well, I was going to say like a menstruating cloth for, for women. Oh, I mean, yeah, that that is what they are called. A pad, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So when... Not a cloth, but sure. I'm going to take you up to the pad. It's kind of sticky, and uh, it smells kind of weird, but just, it, it's fine. Just it's fine. bear with me. It's fine. <laughs> All right, so there were three safe houses in San Francisco, but the L-shaped apartment on 225 Chestnut Street on Telegraph Hill was the main show. The apartment had waterfront views, which the agent supplemented with elegant artwork. Toulouse Lautrec posters, a picture of a French can-can dancer, and kinky photos of women in bondage and domination, according to the San Francisco Chronicle. It was supposed to look classy and like a French brothel, but agents noted its tacky appearance instead. I don't think brothels are famed for the for, French ones are for Moulin their Rouge. for their chic yeah but even that but that's the style that I think every brothel has tried to I, as a, I say as an expert uh, on brothels that <laughs> I've been to so many countless I, brothels I, and I will detail now my findings it's uh th that's why it's so difficult to get a show out on a weekly basis uh, I'm just too busy uh, scouring the red light districts of the world. But I, I think that's the look that they've been trying to ape ever since the the Moulin Rouge. Sure, and it just gets tackier and tackier. It, yeah, it never it never looks good. It's never a good look. But then I don't think the Johns are there for like some interior design tips. They're there for a different kind of tip. Um I mean not no shade on uh Toulouse Le Trac or Le Trac. What I, I don't know how to say. It. I'm not I'm not good at French. It's not part of the show <laughs> where we butcher French. Yeah. Look, just uh, keep your comments to yourself. I'm sorry. You do a show. Then you can then you can at me, bro. Nobody adds me. Please at me. <laughs> what a roller coaster of emotions we just went on. Um, but like those are the art nouveau kind of like posters that you're like maybe your middle aged mom probably has up. They're classy. They're classy. You know, like, they're, they're the, the posters that aren't in a frame, and um, 
they've got like they're very kind of like a post-impressionist there there might be like I, like there's one of the black cat like and it's uh oh sure yeah yeah, yeah. it's got like some writing on it yeah hat. or they're, or they're like uh advertisements mm-hmm. for absinthe yeah that yeah. sort of thing so kind like, of sexy i don't look at it and immediately like get a rock on but you know maybe you should what's wrong with you <laughs> Um, I'm more of an Art Deco guy. I see. Yeah. Like, ooh. Well, then you would not have liked this apartment. <laughs> Those stark linear designs, they just, ooh, get my engine rubbing. Um, so they also had William Hawkins, uh, a 25-year-old electronics whiz at Berkeley, put in four double D4 microphones disguised as electrical wall outlets. How appropriate. Yeah. Um, they're probably not called Double D, but that's what I'm calling them. <laughs> they're actually, uh, C4 microphones, but then they just stuff them a little bit. <laughs> don't we? We don't. Nobody does. Um, and hook them up to two F301 tape recorders. So agents could listen in, like, this little nook they had next door. So there's all these little, like, fake wall sockets and all that kind yeah. of shit. What they describe as X-ray mirrors, which we would t- today we would refer to as uh, a two-way mirror. So in the bedroom uh, was a two-way mirror that White sat behind. He sat atop a portable toilet, chugging martinis from a pitcher, for which he had an actual government-funded budget and a refrigerator. Every description you hear about the safe house on Telegraph Hill always includes White sat on a portable toilet and i i have questions that have never been answered by these articles were his pants on or off i think we can assume if you are sat on the toilet anyway if you are sat i it's okay it's one thing to have a toilet in the corner of the room without a partition so that you can while you are still watching the action Back, back, back up slowly, and then lower yourself down, finish your business, and then you go back to your regular chair where you sit and chug pictures after picture of martini. However, to be sat on the portable toilet, I think we have to assume that his pants were down. So, and we can also assume because he he would normally have an assistant with him helping with the, the recording, so... First off, he definitely pissed in front of that person, right? Well, yeah, he's gross. He's a gross man. Um, but I think, I think this room was specifically for him because he would sit and watch. It's like into the bedroom, and we're gonna get what what happened in this bedroom. But he's just he's basically watching uh, sex workers bring back Johns, and then there was a separate room full of like other agents and like tape recorders. I think he's one of the only ones in watching. Which is just so creepy. But... So, first, first question. First question. Do you think he ever took a dookie in that room while the adjacent room was being used? Oh, 100%. So he's just, like, making some steam dumplings while these sex workers are in the next room doing their thing. Chugging his margaritas. He's not that cultured. (laughs) Chugging his martinis. The sex worker and the John are trying to get to it, and they're trying to make it all sexy and everything. What does that smell? (laughs) Did you just take a shit? I mean, I love what you're doing. I could be into that, but did you you just take a dump? It smells like a very large 
quite ill man took a dump. <laughs> and is it vodka? <laughs> <laughs> uh, at that point, you you have to really up your sex game to yeah. like overpower the smell of, um, of feces coming through the wall. Yeah, great. What could be so interesting to a sex-obsessed drug dealer with friends in low places? Well, the CIA was paying sex workers to meet with Johns in the apartment, lace their drinks with LSD, and then watch the show. What they wanted to know was how to get a man to talk. They realized quickly that the period after sex was when their targets were most vulnerable. The men's egos were stroked when sex workers claimed to want to spend more time with them, and they often talked about their business or lives. Basically, they had, like, gone into this first and were like, okay, we've noticed that when he's about to orgasm and the sex worker is, like, getting extras from him, like, basically, oh, and do you also want this? And do you also want that? That, oh, he he seems to, like, you know, that's when we can get in there because he's not exactly vulnerable. He's, like, um, the most amiable but they found that, like, no, he pretty much only wants to talk about sex at that point in time. So they're like, oh, yeah, baby. Oh, yeah, hit it. Oh, I'm close. Oh, I'm close. Oh, I'm close. Have you ever been a member of a trade union? <laughs> <laughs> what? what? Oh, oh. Ah, you got to ask him earlier. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, yeah, it does seem like an odd... How do you how, go? Yeah. How do you pivot from dirty talk to? Um... Also, I think this was kind of the issue that they have. These sex workers are obviously not trained agents. They are what? just women that they are paying to bring Johns back to apartments to watch them. So they no, not to diminish their role. They're probably very good at their job. Absolutely. But their job is not interrogation no and so they're like well we don't, we don't know what to do <laughs> like, they they were like trying to coach them on like basically ways to get the guys to talk or like questions to ask but they're like they're pretty unreliable so like i should i should tickle his balls and then i'm gonna i give him a little and then i a ask, finger ask in about the pooper. communism <laughs> yeah and then well i know I know what to do with a shaft, but then when when do I ask him about about any corruption within the government? Is that is that before or after I sit on his face? It's after. Uh, oh, okay. Oh, okay. All, All right. right. Yeah. Now yeah. I get no, it. No, that's yeah. fair. So basically, they the men were so used to the sex workers getting up immediately and being like, "All right, time to go." That if you've ever worked in a restaurant. Turnover is key, my friend. <laughs> sure. All right? You get that table reset, and you get ready to go. So they're like... Because there's a family waiting outside, and they're hungry. There's no family waiting outside here. <laughs> in the re- in the rest, the restaurant, yeah. there's a family. Um. So the men were like, oh, you know, like, I must have done good, because she's super into me. So they would chat more and more, and the the sex workers had earlier dosed them with like a, a whiskey with like LSD in it or something like that, contro maybe. <laughs> if that, <laughs> it'd be weird if, for some reason, the CIA had just come into like a massive <laughs> surplus of contro. They're really pushing the contro. <laughs> That's like their viral marketing. <laughs> no, they're just like. 
Hey baby, can I fix you something? A Quattro and ice, a Quattro and Coke, maybe a Quattro and soda. You got you got, you got any beer? <laughs> no, baby, just Quattro. I've been smelling a lot of like maybe a martini? <laughs> can I maybe get a martini? For years afterwards, whenever I would smell sweet oranges, I would get a mystery erection and I have no <laughs> idea why. Alright. So, to supply the voyeuristic agents with sex workers and Johns was a man named Ike Feldman. A short, muscular man, he, quote, dressed in suede shoes, a suit with flared trousers, a hat with a turned-up brim, and a huge zirconian ring that was supposed to look like a diamond. So he looks like a pimp. Basically, he had come to San Francisco as, like, a fake mobster. He was, like, his role was to try and, like get in bed with the mob and i think he kind of failed Mm -hmm. and and then he met george hunter white and he's like have i got the job for you um so yeah he i guess he was like a very small man george white was apparently only five seven Mm -hmm. and ike feldman was much shorter than that but he i guess he was quite like yeah come at me bro like Got it. So they've got the same energy that the current head of Scientology and Tom Cruise have, mm. right? When David Miscavige and Tom Cruise see each other and they're like, you're also a short man trying to make it in a tall man's world by giving 110% energy at any given moment. We're just trying to make all the enemies possible on this podcast. Really? <laughs> Spread it around. Lawsuit after lawsuit. <laughs> Um, So this was according to John Marks, who has a book called In Search of the Manchurian Candidate. Mm -hmm. Which you read a lot on the run up to this. Yeah, it's really interesting. It's a good read. Um, I read it on Um, druglibrary.org. While you were trying to rent some drugs. Yeah. You only rent them. I was going to give them back. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, The return system is you flush them down the toilet and they get them somehow. (laughs) Okay, so Feldman paid the sex workers with, in some cases, heroin, and in other cases, chits given to him by White. So basically, if a sex worker was arrested, she'd give the officer George White's phone number, and as the chief federal narcotics agent in San Francisco, the police officers would release the women on his say-so. He apparently kept meticulous notes, and while no money was exchanged, five chits were the equivalent to five of 500 to $1,000. You should have just given him uh, George George bucks. <laughs> I'm gonna pay you in George dollars. And it's the, instead of being like a picture of Washington, it's just a picture of him with a martini on the toilet, pants around his ankles. Now you can only spend these in certain police stations, but but they're good for it, okay? But there's like LSE residue. <laughs> <laughs> you can't take them out of your wallet without getting high off your ass. Okay, like a serial killer ramping up, the agents were only just getting started. They ventured out into restaurants, bars, and beaches, and dosed unsuspecting patrons with a drink or a friendly, friendly cigarette. But they would occasionally lose a victim in the crowd, sending someone off with a head full of LSD and no knowledge of it. And not just LSD. According to Mark's CIA source, quote, If we were scared enough of a drug not to try it out on ourselves, we sent it to San Francisco. I'd like to mention, at this point, doctors were rarely, if ever, present in these situations, and these were drugs that they knew could cause serious problems or death. 
It's never it's never a good thing to be rendered speechless on a podcast, what with it being an audio medium and everything. I mean, what do you say about that? I mean, do on the one hand, when you give such little of a shit about the people that you are dosing and observing, do you feel it's necessary to get a doctor in, involved? On the other hand, is that the only like potential saving grace is if you could turn around later and be like, well, we tried to make it as safe as possible <laughs> for the unsuspecting victims of our basically state-sanctioned date rape scheme. Except we kept losing them in the crowd. I don't but, know how it kept happening. Look, I asked the guy, I was like, what kind of sports you like? Uh, what do you do the weekend? Do you have any pre-existing heart conditions or diabetes? Here's a drink. For some reason, he threw it in my face. <laughs> the last then question was kind of weird. High. Yeah. <laughs> uh, they kept these things on their person in, as we said in the last episode, things like uh, matchbooks or hollowed out pencils. So I wonder the number of times they must have been like taking notes in the office and they were like, just like kind of sucking on their pen like, hmm, hmm. Oh, <laughs> shit. And the pencil turns into a snake. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, what I came to, it was Friday. <laughs> <laughs> they, uh, they didn't just stick to John's either. So basically, in this, in this scheme, what was happening is the prostitute, sorry, the sex workers were, uh, bringing their own Johns to, uh, to Telegraph Hill, to this mm-hmm. apartment. Um, but at some point, the CIA was like, well, George Hunter White was like, but we want you to target specific individuals. Yeah. So they asked sex workers to lure men into the pad and dose them as a sort of dry run for doing this to government officials. So this whole this whole thing is like they didn't know the women were sex workers. They didn't know that they were being dosed. These were like they were usually sticking to like probably people of a low income or or something at first and then they just kind of like their victim pool just gets bigger and bigger well it, it's the reason that uh george white set up shop in greenwich village years before this was that greenwich village was known uh i think it still is to this day as kind of like a hip community where it was very welcoming of the LGBTQ crowd and it was very welcoming to people who wanted to take recreational drugs. So somebody rolling into a police station and saying, I've been drugged, there was a man, he put something in my drink. People aren't going to give them the time of day. If you did it somewhere like Manhattan, people would be more likely to pay attention. And this is apparently part of the reason why Gottlieb chose San Francisco is because even though... To my knowledge, uh, prostitution at this time was illegal. They were tr- they were trying to clean up their image somewhat, but it also had a burgeoning LGBTQ community, and it was also known as a place where people were uh, taking a lot of marijuana rec- uh, recreationally. So they knew that they could target people. And also, George Hunter White had this job there as right. a, a chief. He was basically in charge of the narcotics unit there. Yeah, the uh, district supervisor of mm-hmm. um, the the FBN. And yeah, so they, they essentially had a pool of people that, you know, they, they knew authorities wouldn't kick up too much of a fuss about. And this is also, let's be honest with ourselves, people... People pay for sex workers regardless of whether it's it's legal in that country or not. Making it legal just makes it more apparent. And 
to these Johns, okay, some of them surely were stepping out in their wives and families, of course, but does that mean they they deserve to get oh. dosed with some mystery drug? Would <laughs> and then have like have their entire experience recorded? Recorded, watched by a man who's probably chain smoking on the other side of a two way mirror, mm-hmm. and drugged with something that could potentially like if they had a pre pre existing condition could cause their death. Yeah, yeah. Um, I'm I'm gonna say no. <laughs> I'm gonna be brave and say no. They didn't deserve that. There's nothing wrong with sex work as long as you know, like it's a consenting sex worker and like you know, of of course, in, right, in good conditions, right. right. Which is I I think part of the the modern nomenclature, the move towards um calling these individual sex workers instead of prostitutes, is we're trying to draw a line between consensual sex work and non-consensual. Uh, prostitution. Yeah, right? absolutely. <laughs> I mean, I, you know, I'm not an and, expert, but and also, you know, prostitute is typically associated as like a dirty word. Yeah, you know, yeah, but... yeah. It's just something that had it's been bandied around um, and and kind of misused for too long, which is why we're we're trying not to do that here. I, I believe some of these women were also. Uh, they they maybe wanted to use them in the future as undercover agents, right? They were thinking about possibly recruiting them as honeypots, mm. basically. They were like, well, we've seen how, like, you know, they could get information out of men. We could recruit them to try and do this to other, like, in other countries. I don't think anything ever came of it. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think the CIA did that as much as, like, the KGB did. Right. There was something else I was reading, I think, in, in John Mark's book, where basically it was like the CIA were quite squeamish when it came to some things, <laughs> rightly so. Basically, there was like, I think he was uh, maybe like a, a Russian agent, had like a, was a pedophile, and he was into like young boys. And uh, they were like, well, maybe we could use this against him. But they were like, we can't, we can't get like, a, we're not going to send like a 12 year old boy in. There's nothing we can do. Just leave it. They just send George Hunter White, but like dressed as a <laughs> small <baby>. boy. <laughs> yeah. He, he's just got like short shorts and like one of those little hats with like uh, the little helicopter brim. Swirly lollipops. <laughs> hey there, uh, Vlad. I hear you like little boys. It's me, Georgie. <laughs> I, I'm on my way to school uh, with my books, and I, I, I've I got a Wowie Pop. Can I sit on your lap? You know what? I didn't think I would be into this, but... Uh, oh, okay, let's give it a roll. <laughs> Up you get, little guy. Uh, just okay. to, to come back to your earlier comment about training these women to be honeypots, uh, just for some of the female listeners out there, if you are uh, experiencing a honeypot currently, you should definitely seek medical attention. Uh, go to your local gum clinic and they, they will give you some... Your local uh, what clinic? Gum clinic. Uh, it stands for something, but it's basically like where you go... Gynecology... Up the... <laughs> nope. Nope. <laughs> but uh, yeah, definitely get some antibiotics for that. Okay. Well, across the water, another safe house in Marin County was experimenting with, quote, stink bombs, itching and sneezing powders, and diarrhea inducers. So anything you see on that shelf at, like, the novelty shop. Where, where do you think that came from, guys? Those are your tax dollars at work. As well as such... Delivery systems as a mechanical launcher that could throw a foul-smelling object 100 yards, 
glass ampules that could be stepped on in a crowd to release any of Trichler's powders, a fine hypodermic needle to inject drugs through the cork in a wine bottle, and a drug-coated swizzle stick. Things really got out of hand when those glass ampules got mistaken for glasses at a bunch of different Jewish weddings. And, oh, God. the uh, It's not what we step on. <laughs> the, whoa, the Edelbaum's wedding last month really got out of hand. So at this location, they did some experiments. Not as many, but basically there's one where they have, like, an aerosolized LSD. So they just kind of, like, go around and invite strangers to a party. And they're like, come on, come to this party. And then in the middle of the party, they're trying to set off, like, this, like, aerosolized LSD. But it was so hot that all the windows were open. So it wasn't working. So one of the scientists took the aerosol into the bathroom and, like, closed the door and just tried to, like, dose himself. But it didn't work. That, that guy just really wanted to get high that day. <laughs> it didn't work until later when somebody mistook it for an axe body spray. Yeah, yeah, just... They were fine, but their armpits were full of tiny monsters that were spouting fascist ideology, which was kind of weird. Yeah. Yeah. According to Marx, the MK Ultra crew continued unwitting testing until the summer of 1963, when the agency's inspector general, John Earman, stumbled across the safe houses during a regular inspection of TSS activities. The inspector general cited the risks of exposure and pointed out that many people, both inside and outside the agency, found, quote, the concepts involved in manipulating human behavior to be distasteful and unethical. Fucking, like, understatement of the day. (laughs) Some people might not be into slipping drugs to unsuspecting American citizens. I don't know why, but some people are just kind of a drag. So at this time, the, I think he was the head of the TSS, which is the, the technical service staff. He kind of like ums and ahs about the project for like two years. He just, he doesn't give any kind of decision. So the TSS officials just kind of closed the San Francisco safe houses in, uh, in 1965 and the New York one in 1966. Yeah. So that's the... It's the end of the operation, right? Except there was a lot of fallout, and we've got a couple more horror stories to tell you guys. So uh, let's take a, a little break, and then we'll come back for all that fun. Can't wait. Hello and welcome back. Uh, Before the break there, we were talking about the breaking of the glass at a Jewish wedding, which you said you wanted to do at our wedding, right? Oh yeah, I am going to do. Uh, He's not going to break the glass, I am. Traditionally, you have like a little piece of glass and then you cover it with a handkerchief and uh, the groom stomps on it and everybody yells, Mazel Tov! They've seen movies. They've seen wedding crashes. They know what's up. Some people haven't. Um, so you're going to do your traditional Jewish thing. Yeah. Uh, and I am going to do my traditional Scottish thing. By not wearing underwear under your kilt. Yeah. And uh, deep frying one item of clothing for every single one of the guests, uh, which I'll let them select. So I can do your lovely deep fried 
deep fried pair of gloves or uh, do like a deep fried stocking or maybe like a nice deep fried hat. Um, but people just have to let me know in advance. Otherwise, I'd, the quantities of cooking oil need to be sure. pretty and precise. the amount of batter. Yeah, obviously. Obviously. Well, I, I make my were, own. I thought you were so. just going to do um, like just a deep fried Mars bar. <sighs> maybe a deep fried pizza. Was this like 2005? <laughs> Jeez. Come on. Come on, buddy. Come on. Uh, anyway, so the operation at the house on Telegraph Hill would eventually be shut down, uh, and all of their operations in California would eventually be shut down. But that doesn't mean that they didn't get some wacky and horrible shit before then. It's wacky. It's god awful. <laughs> it's the CIA. <laughs> hey, hey. So exactly as he had done previously at the Bedford Street apartment in New York. White would not confine his remit to criminals, nor would he confine his operations to the relatively isolated interiors of CIA safe houses. Everyone and anyone were potential targets. Something that became increasingly clear over time was that although the unaware individuals who were being slipped LSD could not be relied upon to divulge their deepest secrets, they were bound to act in uncharacteristic ways. In short, they were predictably unpredictable. And so it was that on December 20th, 1957, Deputy U.S. Marshal Wayne Ritchie walked into a bar in the Fillmore District of San Francisco and attempted to rob the barman at gunpoint. Ritchie had been attending a Christmas party at the post office, drinking bourbons and soda. Only, that wasn't all he was drinking. Unbeknownst to Ritchie, one of his fellow revelers had slipped him LSD, and from later diary entries that correspond to that night, there's a very good chance that that fellow reveler was George White. What do you think a Christmas party at the post office is like? It is either very stiff, or uh-huh. everybody is just like, fucking, fucking nuts. Fuck wild. <laughs> I think with the, the number of uh, post office employees popping off in the 1990s, my guess is that, that stress has always been built into the system. And so when they have the opportunity for like a company-funded Christmas party, every, everybody's on top of everybody else, right? Somebody's wearing a lampshade in their head in the first five minutes of the party. That's, that's how it kicks off. I see. Yeah. Um, that being said, you probably don't expect to attend... Uh, a Christmas party in the 1950s and then have somebody put LSD in your drink. No. No. No, no, no. A 2012 article in the SF Weekly describes what happened next. Quote, The red and green lights on the Christmas tree in the corner spiraled wildly. Richie's body temperature rose. His gaze fixed upon the dizzying colours around him. The deputy US marshal excused himself and went upstairs to his office, where he sat down and drank a glass of water. He needed to compose himself. But instead, he came unglued. Ritchie feared the other marshals didn't want him around anymore. Then he obsessed about the probation officers across the hall and how they didn't like him. Everyone was out to get him. Ritchie felt he had to escape. And so escape he did. Ritchie went back to the apartment he shared with his girlfriend. But the two argued. She wanted to return to New York, but couldn't afford to. Ritchie left and made his way around a few bars and on the way, he became fixated by a plan to help solve his predicament with his girlfriend. Something that would fix everything. Speaking to Troy Hooper at SF Weekly in 2012, 
Wayne Ritchie said, quote, I was paranoid. I got down to where I thought everyone was against me. The whole world was against me. I decided if they wanted to get rid of me, I'll help them. I'll just go out and get my guns from my office and hold up a bar. I thought, I can get enough money to get my girlfriend an airline ticket back to New York, and I'll turn myself in, but I was unsuccessful. So, Richie gets this idea in his head. The way you do, when you're drunk, or you're high, it's like when you've been really drunk, and you just make a de- like life-changing decisions. I don't know that I've done that. <laughs> I think we made the decision to start a podcast after having a few drinks. Yeah, but that, like, it's not like you're drunk the next day and then you're like, all right, well, we start this podcast thing. <laughs> what, where did this mic come from? Why have I got these headphones? Oh, shit, man. Did we start a podcast? Uh, also, you don't go to prison for starting a podcast yet. Yes. We'll see. Yeah. Um, I think... It's so hard because, like, obviously, it's not like everybody who takes LSD or, like, some sort of, like, mind-altering drug is just like, oh, well, now I'm going to go rob a bank, you know? This like, is, yeah, <laughs> this is a very old-fashioned worldview which conflates a number of different substances and says that if you take drugs, you will do crimes, right? But another way of putting it is if you take drugs while under the influence of a lot of alcohol and you're unaware that you've taken drugs and you happen to be going through a depressive phase or you happen to be going through a period of conflict with uh, people that you're close to, then you might go and do some crimes. I, it's, I don't know. It's, there's, a, there's a hint of reefer madness about this, mm. you know what I mean? Richie went to his office, and he got his revolver before making his way over to a bar called the Shady Grove. There, he downed one last bourbon and soda before pointing his gun at the bartender and ordering him to empty the register. Before he could, a waitress came up behind Richie and asked what he was doing. When he turned to respond to her, something hit him, wham, across the back of the head. Richie had been knocked unconscious by one of the patrons, and when he came to... He was in the company of the police. It's not how you ever want to come to. No. I mean, unless the police are like, we're going to get the guy. Yeah. You know? Hey, buddy. (laughs) How you You doing? Yeah, no, I I think they were there to take him away. Yeah. Well, I mean, I I do feel sympathetic towards Richie, like, but at the same time... Patrons, the people around him acted as they, they... probably should have acted if they were getting held up, right? If you're getting held up, just give somebody the money. It's not worth it. It's not worth it. But don't get in the car. (laughs) Also, (laughs) can you... I know know this happens a lot in the movies, and people talk... It's... uh, Were things just heavier in the past, or were people's skulls lighter? Because (laughs) I don't... But you hit somebody across the back of the head. Like, in the movies, it's like, they go down like a sack of spuds. If it's James Bond, he just, like karate chop somebody in the back of the neck and they're like oh i'm dead um but that doesn't that doesn't (laughs) doesn't really seem to happen in real life it's like you would crack somebody across the back of the head and they'd be like what the fuck and then punch you it completely depends where you're hitting them in the back of the head with i mean if you hit someone hard enough in the back of the head you could just kill them 
Yes. Like, or if somebody falls and hits yeah. the back of their head. It's it's not like it's like in movies where they're like, oh, you know, punch someone in the face, the person goes down, and then like they wake up like ten minutes later, like, yes. oh, what happened? They're that- out for a solid thirty <laughs> that you can time in your watch. You you can potentially kill someone that way. Yeah. So. I do think on the one hand, uh, yeah, things were probably more solidly built back then. (laughs) Um, But on the other hand, I think we've experienced this kind of like movie-esque lie where like there's either like this big hulking guy who gets hit across the back and he's like with a breakaway chair and he's like, fucker, like, Mm -hmm. and turns around. I don't think typically you get hit in the back with a chair. You go down unless you're like fueled by in some sort of like rage (laughs) (laughs) or steroids. Yeah, exactly. Or both. Uh, Well, Rain Ritchie was just being fueled by LSD. And so he, he went down pretty hard. In hindsight, the judge seems to have been quite lenient with Rain Ritchie. This was a first time offense for the former Marine and Alcatraz prison guard. He managed to avoid a prison sentence after pleading guilty, but was given a $500 fine and placed on two years probation. <sighs> ah, I'm sorry. Like, I know he he is a victim here, but they don't know that. And mm. um, the fucking police privilege, like white are you, people privilege. Are you trying to say that if he was a person of color, he, he would still currently be in prison? Yeah, he'd be yeah. dead in prison, probably. Sure, 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 sure. Um, or... If he wasn't a police officer, like a, a marshal, he's a marshal. He he also. Oh, but you're a, you're a young stand-up guy with so much of your life ahead of you. Look at that that smart cut. You're a military man. Blue lives matter, Alicia. Mm. Blue lives matter. He resigned from the marshal service, and the incident seems to have ended his career in law enforcement. It was his fault, right? Too much booze and not enough sense. What else could possibly explain his rash decision to do something so thoroughly out of character for this otherwise upstanding citizen? Well, I mean, I think we know. We know. (laughs) It was more of a rhetorical question, to be be honest. You don't want, like, a a one-page response? I want some witty banter. That's what I'm here for. I ain't got any, man. I think you know that by now. (laughs) You're wrung out like a dish rag. I'm just not very good at witty banter. In the podcast. In real life, I'm hilarious, guys, but you just don't get that here. Uh-huh. It's like somebody who tries to show you a magic trick and they're like, <laughs> I could do I could do it earlier, I swear. But nobody was watching. She is hilarious as fuck. Thank you. Yeah. Often on this podcast. So don't <laughs> come on, buddy. Don't talk yourself down. I guess. Why Thanks, you, guys. Why don't you tell <laughs> us the next thing, huh? All right. All right. Okay. Okay. So the next thing is uh the church committee. So in 1973, we've done quite a time jump here, because remember, the, the safe houses were closed in 65. So in 1973, we've hit Watergate. Yeah. I, uh, <laughs> what, what do you think the music playing for that is? I don't know. Some sort of like 70s, like groovy band. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, probably some 70s groovy band. Uh, I wonder if ABBA had happened by this point. I think so. Isn't Abba more of an 80s thing? I think that was more of a 70s thing. All right. Well, my bad. Let's get back to the things we do know. Okay. Let's not make ourselves look dumber than we have to. Set ourselves up for success, man, Mm -hmm. and read the thing I wrote. It became clear that the CIA was violating its charter and operating domestically, and this called for a congressional inquiry. In 1975, a team was put together. A team. 
yeah, a team of ex-military members who had been thrown into prison for a crime they didn't commit. Some might call them the B team. <laughs> okay, uh, they were. They were lawmakers, junior policymakers, and people from all political spectrums. Well, I mean, according to them, at least. Mm-hmm. This committee gained unprecedented access to documents from secret agencies, and although the release of these documents were slow, they did see them. According to Senate.gov, quote, investigators identified programs that had never been before known to the American public, including NSA's projects Shamrock and Minaret, programs which monitored wired communications to and from the United States and shared some of that data with other intelligence agencies, what a lot of people don't realize about Project Shamrock is that the NSA weren't specifically targeting leprechauns, but mm-hmm. they were interested in leprechaun-based activity. I knew that's where I was going to go. What? Don't <laughs> give me that easy... That's a tip-up, okay? You set them up, I mostly hit the rim and it bounces halfway across the court and then I have to awkwardly run into the grass to get it. But you set them up. I am much better at basketball than you, despite our height <laughs> difference. <laughs> despite you being much shorter. Uh, committee staff researched the FBI's long-running program of covert action designed to disrupt and discredit the activities of groups and individuals deemed a threat to the social order, known as COINTELPRO. Yeah, which is... Co- uh, co- COINTELPRO. I think that was one of the um, earliest... Microsoft uh, desktop computers. <laughs> I think I think they had them in a lot of offices, but not in a lot of homes. Yeah, no, they um they offered to put it into your computer nowadays. Yeah, but just immediately uh, stuff comes up about like how they're wiretapping your computer and it, exactly. Yeah, they'll offer, but you could you could just hit like decline. Like a little pop up window will be like, "Do you want to buy drugs?" <laughs> and you're like, um. <laughs> It's Clippy, but Clippy's wearing a trench coat. (laughs) Clippy, what happened to you? The FBI included among the program's many targets organizations such as the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, the Anti-Vietnam War Movement, and individuals such as Martin Luther King Jr., as well as local, state, and federal elected officials. Nice, covering all your bases. Yeah. In one infamous incident, the FBI bugged Martin Luther King Jr.'s hotel room obtained evidence of infidelity, and then attempted to use the tapes to blackmail King into killing himself, according to the Washington Post. Yikes. Okay, blackmail is one thing. Could you really blackmail someone into killing themselves? Like, the whole point is to, like, (laughs) shameful information. I don't want to see the light of day. What's the point if I'm dead? (laughs) Dr. King, this is very simple. We'll give you the tapes, but you have to give us some money. Five hundred and thirty-eight trillion gajillion dollars. And then they just, like, bring or, that pinky to the corner of their mouth. <laughs> I guess, I mean, if you didn't have the money, you just, I don't know, you could just kill yourself, whatever. And they just slide a revolver across the table. <laughs> An envelope in one hand, a loaded gun in the other. Uh, the end result of all of this, you're like, oh, here it comes. Here's the comeuppance. The CIA mm-hmm. are going to get yep, it. They're going to get it good. They're going to get greater checks mm-hmm. and balances. Mm-hmm. Yes. In, in 1976, the Senate approved Senate Resolution 400, establishing the Senate Select Committee on Intelligence to provide 
vigilant legislative oversight of the intelligence activities of the United States to assure that activities are in conformity with the Constitution mm. and laws of the United mm. States. Uh, so don't do it again. <laughs> sorry, I zoned out halfway through that, but I'm assuming that bunch of legalese that you just spouted uh, will really get to the root cause yeah. of what's going on. Yeah, it'll give him a light slap on the wrist. <laughs> <laughs> Which is for men who like to be dominated. That's exactly. The, that's the worst punishment. They're like, give me more, daddy. And they're like, no. I won't. Stop no. bending over. I've brought my riding crop. I've brought my paddles. And I'm not going to use them. Yes. How that's does... your punishment. How does it feel? Squeezing their dick between their legs. <laughs> and they're like, oh, that's really good, actually. So, uh... Let's back up for a moment and remember that uh, these people tortured men and women, experimented on people without their knowledge or consent, and destroyed lives and got nothing more than a little... Stop it. Don't you do that again. I mean, I think... It's not, it's not right. It's not right that none of these people face prison time. It's not right that... None of these people had to give up their careers and then basically live outside of society because of what they did. I think if this had happened, I don't know if it, it maybe if it had happened in the 1950s or 1960s, maybe if it had happened under the era of JFK because JFK was famously uh, anti CIA. Yeah. Um, although this this committee, I think, was chaired by Ted Kennedy, right? Yeah. Um, I- but maybe, if it had been more current, maybe something more would have happened. Maybe. Perhaps. But as it was, MK Ultra had already been dismantled, um, the Cold War had kind of moved forward, you know, the, the remit of the CIA had changed, and they were in a position where... D- they still do this thing to, uh, to mean- this day, when they talk about the arming of the Mujahideen in the 1980s, subsequently leading to 9-11, they're like, oh, yeah, that's crazy. Ooh, oh, it does such a thing. It's crazy. Well, I'm glad we don't do that kind of thing anymore. It's like, you're like literally... Like the NSA is like... <laughs> that guy, w- that was the guy who hired you, man. Um, yeah, it's it's not only that, it's that we see this kind of thing today, you know... Edward Snowden and the NSA, they're clearly, like, creating files on people listening to conversations and taking data um, from regular citizens. And we're not nearly outraged enough. We're just like, well, well, I guess that's the price you pay for living in complete freedom. Yeah. Is is that is that freedom? That's what you're trying to tell me? I mean, the fact that... We we know that there were massive data breaches within Facebook. We know that data, that Facebook is designed to be a data gathering behemoth that data then sponge exactly that then farms all that data out to any Tom, Dick, or Harry who wants it, or any uh, Vasily, Vlad, <laughs> and Dimitri. Am I right? Am I right, gang? Am I right? Am I right? But we're and we're like, oh, that's shocking. I've got to tell Teresa about what happened at the party last night and then post a half a dozen pictures. You know, we just don't, we don't care. We're, we're all, we're all flashing our boobies and our willies on the TikTok. <laughs> you know? We all know that China's spying us on us on the TikTok, but we don't, we don't care. So we're like, here, China, look at this dick, huh? Look at my gaping asshole. Please don't. It's... It's private. I, also, I haven't 
groomed recently. Uh, why did the CIA pour so much time and money into a project which, from very early on, was clearly a failure? Why put so many members of the public and themselves at risk for something that would never bear fruit? According to Douglas Valentine, quote, The short answer is, so the CIA could learn how to entrap and discredit people. In one alleged case, White, on behalf of his friend, New York mayoral candidate Rudolph Halley, slipped LSD to an opposition speaker at a Halley political rally. A Halley rally. Halley rally. I just got that. That is what MKUltra was all about, entrapping and compromising politicians, friends and foes alike. It is well known within the intelligence research community that the CIA tried to dose Fidel Castro with LSD, and that the FBI made illegal tapes of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. engaging in extramarital sex in a blatant attempt to force him out of politics. So it was no longer about trying to brainwash people. If you recall all the way back in episode one, we talked about trying to make these agents. deprogram people. Exactly. And they were like, well, I guess all that torture didn't really amount to anything. So uh, let's just see what we can get from all these politicians. Yeah. And when we were talking about all the the wacky inventions that they had as well, things like stink bombs, things about uh, things like something that would induce diarrhea. Part of that was if you could make someone smell bad enough or shit themselves in public, could you then make that person look like a fool at a time when... I mean, this was in the 1950s during an era where people did like their politicians to be nice, straight-laced, buttoned up, and if you could just make them crap their pants <laughs> in front of a live audience, they'd be like, well, I'm not going to vote for this guy. So, yeah, they they were trying to get something that they could leverage over people, and in that respect, it was a success. I guess. Do you really need all this to be like... <laughs> I th- but then, like... And we've made this allusion a couple of times. These are like the activities of serial killers. The way that they use their power to prey on innocent individuals. Serial killers don't just stop. They don't plateau. They ramp up. They ramp up until they go into berserker mode. And this indiscriminate dosing of random members of the public, in some cases en masse, is a kind of berserker mode when you think about it. Gottlieb would never face punishment or prosecution for his role in the MKUltra program and its effect on the civilian population of both the USA and abroad. The only real consequence that he faced was that such an intensely private man, who had managed to stay out of the spotlight until that point, had now been forced center stage and vilified for what he probably felt were entirely justifiable actions. Writing in his book, Poisoner-in-Chief, Sidney Gottlieb and the CIA Search for Mind Control, Stephen Kinzer says, quote, I don't think that Sidney Gottlieb was a sadist, but he might as well have been. According to the Independent newspaper, he and his wife spent some time travelling in his retirement to places like Australia, Africa, and India, where they worked at a hospital for those with leprosy. He died in March 1999, supposedly after having suffered from heart problems. Well, that makes up for all of it. Yeah. Well, I guess he's a good guy after all. He really, we mentioned this in episode one, but he is a very conflicting individual because on a surface level, he's living in the 1940s, 1950s, 60s equivalent of an eco house. He farms goats, uh, meditates, and during his retirement with his wife... 
in addition to working at a leprosy clinic, they would also help uh, children with speech impediments. They they tried to help with speech therapy. According to, them with LSD. According yeah. to Stephen Kinzer, well, nothing <laughs> loosens up a kid's mouth like being high as a kite. Um and, and he was a conservationist, etc., etc. He, he tried to do things for the benefit of humanity, but he wasn't above. He he would have been the um, you can't make an omelette without breaking some eggs type of mindset. I think he's the kind of mindset where there's no like while George Hunter White was like black and white, Golly was like no, there's no colors. Yeah. There's like there's nothing. It, what I'm doing is not wrong because there's no such thing as wrong. I, I literally don't see colors. I live my life inside of the uh, video for a Take On Me by Aha, which means everything is is just hand-drawn, and there are weird motorcycle men running after me and my girlfriend. Why is everybody snapping and dancing? <laughs> so, yeah, he, he never got his comeuppance. All right, well, now it's time for our um, end-of-movie little scroll. We're going to freeze-frame on all the people. Yeah, so let's flick to another 1980s classic. <laughs> Don't you forget about me. So everybody freeze frames mm. like Judd Nelson at the end of The Breakfast Club with a fist up in the air. Uh, so Sidney Gottlieb with his fist up in the air. <laughs> uh, who am I trying to kid? He can't jump. <laughs> In 1999, Wayne Ritchie would read the obituary of Sidney Gottlieb in the newspaper. After hearing about the mad scientist's public experiments with LSD, the former deputy U.S. marshal would put two and two together, finally realizing what had driven him to hold up a bar back in 1957. He would attempt to sue the CIA, and White's old pimp Ike Feldman would even be deposed to testify. However, although the judge recognized that Ritchie may have been one of the victims of MKUltra, he ruled that there wasn't enough evidence to support his claim. It's a uh, shame, but apparently Ike Feldman wasn't very <laughs> wasn't very nice to him when he took the stand either. He, he referred to him as a, a nitwit who couldn't couldn't handle his sauce essentially. Wow, I know, right? Like yeah, literally adding <laughs> insult to injury. A special victims task force was set up by the CIA in July 1979 in order to reach out to potential victims of MKUltra to see if they could claim compensation from the US government. Barbara Smythe passed away the year prior from cancer. It had been a long, slow decline for both her mental and physical health. Her former husband, Elliot, was encouraged by task force member Frank Lobinger to follow his claim with the CIA. And in October of that year, under representation of law firm Rogovin, Stern, and Huge, he attempted to... Don't laugh at that. <laughs> you only ever see Rogovin and Stern because Huge can't get up out of his chair. He can't because... get through the door. <laughs> oh, you're implying that he's fat. Yeah. I'm implying that he has a chode for a penis. Oh. Rogovin, Stern, and Huge... Uh, he attempted to sue the CIA on her behalf for $2.5 million. He was awarded nothing. Clarice Smithline, nee Clarice Stein, who had also been dosed the same night as Barbara and was subsequently overwhelmed by the horrors, had also suffered from cancer and health issues surrounding subsequent treatment. Expert witnesses agreed there may have been a causal relationship between the unwitting dosing of these two women and their similar health issues later in life. But as clear documentation was not detailed at the time, it was impossible to prove the link in court. 
Clarice Smithline was awarded a meager $15,000 for the incident. Well, I just, I think the people who, who dosed you unwittingly just didn't keep good enough records. And, uh, and therefore we can't find anybody guilty. All right, have a nice day. What What's kind of funny, not ha-ha funny, but what's kind of funny is that, uh, again, a lot of what we know about all of these incidents come from the door, from the diaries of George Hunter White himself, and he, if you haven't already guessed, should not have been doing that. <laughs> he should not have been documenting any of this as a, either as a federal agent or as a government agent or a consultant to the CIA, however you want to term it. He should not have been putting this stuff down in paper. So from when he got hired, like day one, and he recorded that, he, he already fucked himself over. Well, he didn't fuck himself over. He never got, nothing happened to him. Okay, yeah, you're, no, you're absolutely correct. Um, had he lived a little bit longer, that might have been a problem. Yeah, so, unfortunately, yeah, they're not taking meticulous notes of the dosage and quantity of LSD that they're giving to these poor fucking women. George Hunter White retired from the police force in 1965, but he'd been plagued by liver problems for two years prior. He moved to Stinson Beach, California, and became the local fire marshal who would reportedly call in complaints whenever he saw kids smoking pot near the shore. No drugs! Can we take a moment <laughs> to a appreciate that? drug man. I know, he, uh, he doesn't want to see, doesn't want to see people get high, apparently, is George Hunter White. Well, not if they know they're getting high. Hey, stop enjoying those drugs. <laughs> Slip those drugs to each other unwittingly so that they can all freak the fuck out. That's how you do drugs. He wrote a pulpy paperback entitled A Diet of Danger. Of course he did. That went on to be rejected by publishers. But his wife said he was such a good writer. I know, right? Well, it's like when you say that I'm a good podcaster. Yeah, baby. (laughs) (laughs) That's because you are. Thank you. you're, You're so good. You're my little boy. Stop, stop. Please stop. White would finally succumb to his years of chronic alcohol abuse when he died from cirrhosis of the liver in 1975. Remember the quote from the beginning of the show? The one about lying, cheating, and drugging people being fun, fun, fun? That was White writing a letter to his old buddy Gottlieb not long before his death. He truly was an unrepentant bastard until the very end. Of course he was. Why? He's been given no reason to repent. He's given no, like, what would make him feel bad about what he's done? Nothing. He, he obviously has no sort of conscience, and that's not going to help. And they never got any sort of comeuppance. So, of course, he would die of liver failure that he gave himself from being an alcoholic and just be like, yeah, pretty good life. Yeah. I don't wish ill on anyone, especially cancer sufferers, but I hope his cirrhosis wasn't a pleasant experience Mm. for him, let's say. Albertine White would stand by her husband long after his death. When approached by Douglas Valentine in 2002 for his series of articles in Counterpunch, she had nothing but praise for her late partner. After his death, she donated his diaries to a local college, and they eventually found their way to Stanford University, where they're still archived today. Ironically, donating his writings to the public is what helped shine a light on some of her beloved husband's less than pleasant activities. Good. Great. Love it. <laughs> yeah. Which, you remember earlier when I, fu- uh, I said I found Albertine to be quite a conflicting character? 
this is one of the things that I find conflicting because could she have been so... I mean, she must have read that material. If you're going to give it to the public, if you're going to give it to other people, you must have read it first. Maybe. I don't know. I mean, she donated this to other people. What did they... They thought they were going to read it and be like, oh, this seems like a real swell guy. You know, he seems like a real stand-up gent. Or was it her way... Because when she was approached by Douglas Valentine and he put it to her that she had been culpable in the the drugging and subsequent decline of 19-year-old Barbara Smythe, she, this, like, very, like, genteel, well-mannered old lady, apparently just started effing and jeffing, uh, right? So she's clearly harboring some feeling of guilt, and I wonder if this donation of the diaries is a way of her kind of absolving herself of that guilt a little bit. Like, if I, if I... If I make it public indirectly, then I have basically I've freed myself of this. I disagree. I think like the way that she talks about him throughout her entire life, the fact that she is basically a hundred percent on his side when he drugs her friends, the the people that she spends time with that she has to talk down off of ledges and she's still like, My husband's a great man. Like She's a piece of shit. Like, she knows what he did to those women who she was supposed to be friends with. And she she does nothing. Mm-hmm. So not only does she know what he's doing, she facilitates it for him. Either way, either way, that's the... That's the end. <laughs> that's it. That's the very complex, tawdry, uh, disturbing story of George Hunter White, Sidney Gottlieb, and the CIA and how basically they did a lot of terrible shit and nothing ever happened to them. Hmm. Um, how about a little palate cleanser? Sure. Should I give fact. you some my uh, got some weird and wacky ideas from secret agencies or just uh, agencies around the world? Yeah, go for it. My first one is that Nazis originally thought about relocating Jews to Madagascar before the final solution. Did they did they think that Jews were lemurs? <laughs> is that like in addition to thinking that they had horns and uh like forked tongues that they think feet. Yeah, they also had stripy tails and yeah. enjoyed bounding around sideways. Um, I don't think it was anything about enjoyment. I don't know what, maybe like an island. They're like, well, they won't be able to get it off an island. There's no boats. <laughs> Everyone knows Jews can't swim. Um, okay, uh, the CIA tried to, em- we, we probably already know this one, but CIA tried to embarrass Castro by causing his beard to fall off by placing thallium salts in his shoes. Mm-hmm. I mean, I guess if the shoes are the only part of Castro you can get to. <laughs> but the beard is up here, sir. <laughs> Uh, American authorities contacted MI5 uh, because they were terribly concerned that Charlie Chaplin was actually a Russian Jew named Israel Thornstein. Doesn't say why they were concerned about that. They're just they're just concerned. <laughs> Ooh, could be a Russian Jew. <laughs> um, the bowler hat, maybe, maybe um, that's what's throwing them off. Okay. Um, and lastly, um, MI6 has an annual pantomime. Okay. <laughs> you got any uh, any follow-up info I, on that? I don't know. What I do know is that this comes from, like, an article where they're interviewing some, like, MI5 and MI6 agents, and they're, like, kind of talking about, like, what is real life as a spy? And they're like, oh, well, you know, we are very competitive. Apparently, MI5 has 
um, an annual bake-off. Um, and people are really competitive about the food that they bring in. And uh, MI6 has an annual um, pantomime that uh, they go perform and watch. Hmm. Uh, for those who don't know, a pantomime... Why don't you explain what a pantomime is? Pantomime is like uh, kind of like a kid's play, like a family oriented play. It's always based around like a stock fairy tale like Aladdin or Sleeping Beauty or whatever other ones they it's do. It's quite silly. They're always kind of silly. There's certain tropes like um, there's always... Uh, a woman dressed as like a young boy, and there's always like a man dressed as like a like a fat auntie, like an ugly like an ugly like stepmother. Nurse, yeah. yeah, and there's always a bit where they can't find the character, and they're like, "Where are they?" And the audience have to go like, "Who's behind you?" Um, it's great. I've never been to a pantomime, but I understand that they are a hoot now. <laughs> Uh, I love the idea of them writing the script for this year's pantomime, and then they go to hand it in, and they're like, "Wait a minute, this is." This is details of how to assassinate the Russian ambassador. But then where... Oh, <gasps> shit. <laughs> and there's just an agent putting on a horse costume. <laughs> the feeling is like... Okay, well, I don't know how this is going to help. But... How am I going to convince them to get into these green tights? You know what? I'll figure it out. I'll make it work. Um... So, George Hunter White, amongst his other targets in his earlier career as a narcotics uh, bureau agent, he uh, went after Billie Holiday. So, apparently, the feds had it out for Billie Holiday. Uh, not 100% sure why. And the implication was that... Uh, so, they raided her her home. And the implication is that they had previously picked up her husband... Because uh, she had, like, this abusive relationship with her husband who was doing drugs all the time. And that he basically worked out a deal where he could implicate his wife. So uh, they, like, planted heroin in her apartment. Nice, nice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it was good stuff. So they, but I, I'm not 100% sure why they just had it out for Billie Holiday and they were they were looking to bring her up on drugs charges at every opportunity. So that was an early claim to fame for him. Yeah, Excellent. I like the idea that he could, like, at dinner parties years later, uh, what kind of music do you like? Oh, you know, jazz, Billy Holiday. Oh, I you met her once. You won't believe this. <laughs> I planted drugs in her apartment. Oh, cool. Did she, uh, she like, sign, sign an autograph? Or... No, no, I did Well, she was handcuffed at the time, <laughs> so, uh, you know. Uh, what are you going to do? Yeah, lovely lady, lovely singing voice. All right. Well, we hope you've enjoyed today's episode. Thank you so much for listening. If you like the show, please give us a like, give us a follow, and leave a review. This has been Enter the Rabbit Hole, as always, reminding you to... Uh, don't keep a secret diary of all the shitty things you do to innocent people, um, and, and then hope that you can leave it to your spouse and they're gonna keep it under wraps, because, uh... They might donate it to university and then everybody will know what a scumbag you were forever. Yeah. 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 Keep it keep it hidden. Keep yeah. it secret. Keep it safe. Just a little pile of post-it notes underneath your underneath your bed. Alright, gang. Take care for now. Have a wonderful day. Bye-bye. Ciao. Enter the Rabbit Hole is written and presented by William Grant and Alicia Palmer. The music was created by Glenn Marshall. More information and sources can be found in the episode description. You can email us at etrhthepod at gmail.
follow us on Instagram at ETRHThePod. Thanks for listening.